All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited to see you all. This is Money Matters. This is an incredible course because at the key, at, sorry, at the core of this course, it's all about money, finance, the economy, wealth, doing it in a kosher way. I'll tell you a story. So a businessman once comes to, uh, to a college. And he's going to give a class. He's a big macher. He's like, yeah, he's... Uh, not as big macher as Rabbi Teldin in Long Island, but also a big macher. Yeah, he has a lot of money. He's, he's in this business school, or he's speaking about ethics and business. And he gets up and he says, you know what an ethical question is? Like this, imagine you own a dry cleaners. Yeah. And a guy gives in a suit. Yeah. And you're, you're cleaning the suit and you check the pockets. Right? The customer leaves. Right? You check the pockets and you find in the jacket pocket a $100 bill. So now you have an ethical question. What's the ethical question? Do you tell your partner or do you keep it for yourself? That was a joke, That's right? That's hysterical. That's, <laughs> I think I said it too deadpan. Do you tell your partner or do you keep it for yourself? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll warm everybody up. So we know the, uh, one of the hardest areas in life to have full propriety is when it comes to money. Money, there, there's an old Hasidic statement that goes like this. Three things will make you, three things are guaranteed to work. Okay? Money is guaranteed, three things are guaranteed to have an effect. Money definitely will make you mashuga, will make you crazy, right? Um, uh, mashka, alcohol will make you drunk, make you shikr. That's number two, are guaranteed. And learning Torah will make you more refined. Those are the three things that are guaranteed in life. If somebody says that it's not working, it means you haven't had enough. If you have money and you're not mashuga, you're not like crazy, it means you don't have enough money. If you had enough money, you'd be crazy. If you drink and you're not chicker, you're not, you're, not, uh, you're not drunk, it means you didn't drink enough. And if you study Torah and you're not yet refined, it means you didn't study enough Torah because these are guaranteed to work. The point is that money has an effect on, on all of us to, make, to skew our way of thinking, you know, dangle some money in front of somebody and... and and it's almost guaranteed that their way of thinking is a little bit different. It's interesting that when it comes to judges, the Torah says that, um, obviously, I mean, it's, it's common sense, but the Torah makes a special prohibition against this. A, a judge cannot take a bribe. It says because a bribe will blind the eyes of the righteous, cloud the eyes and the, and the, and the, and the, and the perspective of the righteous. And the commentaries on the Torah say, the commentaries of the Bible say, that the reason why it adds the word righteous is to tell us that even if the judge is a righteous person, is a good person, but the allure of money just changes the way you think. And the Talmud tells story after story after story of great rabbis. It says a story about there was once a rabbi who served as a judge in his community. He sat on the rabbinical court. And one day he's, he's walking and it's, I don't know, it's wet. Something, something was going on. It was raining. And somebody, some guy helps him in his walk. Some guy helps him. The next day, he's at the court. And he's not sitting on the case. You know, they rotated judges in and out. He wasn't sitting. But this guy had a case. And he was sitting in the courtroom. We're listening in. And he found himself finding arguments why this guy was right. And he said to himself, this guy did me a favor yesterday. And when it comes to, you know, considering, the, and I'm not even the judge in this case, I'm already naturally, my brain is trying to figure out ways in which to make this guy, you know, to, 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 to justify this guy and his claim against the other guy. A bribe, whether it's financial or a favor or otherwise, currying favor, a bribe, money has such a powerful effect. 
It's a seductive drug. It's so, it could be, it's so powerful, it could be powerfully good, and it could also be powerful the other way. We've seen, you know, I wrote up in the, in the promotional uh, text for this course, we've seen this stuff. We know what happened with FTX, right? Right, a member of the tribe, Sam Bankman fried SBF. And FTX, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. We're talking about Tom Brady. Tom Brady. All right, probably two, two. Yeah, yeah, it was a crypto exchange. And a lot of people had a lot of money in there. And he went big on the marketing. You know, it's, this it's, one's different. It has two parents that were professors yes. at Stanford. Yes, yes. I think one Stanford and one, uh, no, Bo Stanford? or no, both, both Stanford. Bo Stanford. My, my son-in-law. Um, yeah, one in, in ethics and one in business, like really like uh, prominent guys. And, and so they, he created this, this crypto exchange. People put in a lot of money and it collapsed. Long story short, the whole thing collapsed. The, the, the stuff that he was selling didn't have the value. The whole house of cards crumbled. I mean, you, there's, a lot, there's been a lot of stuff produced. I've listened to two podcasts on it, multi-series. I consider myself now an expert because once you listen to a podcast, <laughs> you're for sure an expert on it. But, it, it's, it, but he had like Tom Brady and he had other celebrities. He had Larry David that did a Super Bowl commercial for FTX. People did like – he went very big in the marketing and the whole thing collapsed. Here's the point. And people lost a lot of money. Um, banking, you know, the banks, when, when were those banks that collapsed? Signature Bank. Um, no, 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 just now. Signature Bank, a few months ago. And then the SVP, right? SVP, was that, what was the one in California? That was the one in, in, in California. Yeah. Banks collapse, crypto exchanges collapse. We have other forms of, of impropriety. Again, when it comes to money, people take risks and people kind of, uh, may may bend their moral compass because you know an extra few bucks. So t- so in this throughout this series, we're going to look at different areas of business ethics and ethical dilemmas, and we're going to explore what is what is some what is the Jewish framework around business, wealth, you know, uh, finance, the economy. What's a what's a Jewish framework with, within which to operate? We're going to look at four specific cases and areas of of study. We're going to look at CEO compensation, which is a big conversation. We're going to look at unions, which is a big conversation currently going on in various, uh, in, in various companies. Uh, today, we're going to look at a very, to me, a very fascinating area of, of study and conversation, which is the ethics or lack thereof of insider trading. And by the way, insider trading, as we'll see today, is not just limited to what we might narrowly call insider trading in, in, in legal terms. U.S. legal terms, but insider trading means any situation in which there is an asymmetry of information. In other words, where one side has information that the other side does not have, right? When does that constitute insider trading? When does that constitute a good deal for that person, right? Who draw, and who draws that line? All right, we're going to start with a case study. It's always the best. I find it best to start with a case study. That way we think about a real-life case. And the real-life case we're going to do is Martha Stewart, right? We're going to go Martha Stewart. Everyone knows the story of Martha Stewart, right? She sat in jail. She sat in prison for insider trading. Let's recap the story. We're going to jump inside. You all have um, the booklets that, we, that I printed out. Um, this is Lesson 1 Hot Tips, The Ethics of Insider Trading. Let's jump right in. I'm going to put this up on the screen for our Zoom crew. Um, 
and let's rock and roll because we have so much to cover. This is so much fun. Um, all right, let's hold on, hold on, hold on. I can't start yet until I find this on my computer. Here we go. Perfect. Got it. Okay. Uh, case study one. Yeah, we're skipping text two. We're running straight. Sorry, skipping page two and going straight to page three where it says case study one. And Deborah, are you up to reading? Okay. In December, <coughs> excuse me, 2001, Martha Stewart's friend, Sam Waxel, CEO of a biotech company called Inclone, learned that the FDA was going to reject Inclone's application for approval of its cancer drug, Herbitux. Waxel attempted to call his stockbroker, Peter Bakanovic, at Merrill Lynch, but Bakanovic was on vacation. However, Waxel did speak with Doug Faneuil, Bakanovic's assistant, and told him to sell Waxel's stock in Inclub. Following this exchange, Faneuil called Bakanovic and explained the situation. Bakanovic, who also served as Stewart's broker, told Faneuil to call Stewart and give her the story. Faneuil spoke with Stewart, telling her that he thought Inclone's share price was going to drop because Waxel was trying to cash out. Upon learning this, Stewart decided to sell all 3,928 of her shares in Inclone, giving this order on December 27, 2001. The sale occurred one day prior to the announcement concerning Herbitox's rejection. Thank you. So what we have here is at least uh, according to, to, the, uh, to the indictment and ultimately to the decision from the court, uh, we have here a, cl a classic case of, of insider trading. So Martha Stewart, through you know, a few friends and whatever, so learns that the CEO of this company, right, is selling all his shares, or selling his shares. So what's she gonna do? So she said, sell my shares also. The next day, the whole thing collapses. And she, so how much did she save? I mean, she sold 3,928 shares. How much was that worth? $46,000. Not a huge sum. Worth, that's what she saved. That's what she sold them for. In other words, if it collapsed down to zero, she said, yeah. So it was $46,000. Okay. I mean, in retrospect, might as well, uh, as they say, you just, let them get, just let it, you know. Let it go, but nonetheless, she she did not. She sold the stocks. Now, she claimed, just for transparency, she claimed that she didn't know about you know that the FDA was going to reject it. She didn't know those details. All she knew was that the CEO, you know, her buddy was selling. So she thought, if he's selling, I should sell. Is that insider trading? She said she didn't have any insider information. Although I guess they this, the court decided that that was insider trading. That was enough to be con construed insider trading. By the way, most um, legal experts believed uh, it's going back a number of years, right? So it's not fresh, and in, 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 I don't think it's fresh in any of our minds. But my recollection is that at the time, the, the word going around was that they were making an example. Since it was such a high-profile case, they really wanted to make an example so as to deter, um, you know, that. And there's also another element to insider trading in general. You know, I mentioned before that insider trading at the core goes down to asymmetry of information. You know, our financial system, the economy, is built on confidence. 
If there's no confidence, then everything crashes. That's how things plummet. Once there's lack of consumer confidence, everyone's pulling out, pulling out, then, then even something that could have value suddenly is devalued because again, perception is reality in, in a lot when it comes to the in a large measure when it comes to the economy. And so if people, if normal people, if enough regular people no longer have confidence in the market, because they believe that it's being manipulated by those that have the information, which it may be. But if people start getting wind of that, especially with the high profile case, and like, well, Martha Stewart, because she's Martha Stewart, so now she's getting information that the average shareholder doesn't have, and therefore people are like, well, then I'm out. If the, if the, if the game is rigged, then I'm out. If that's the case, then everything's, then it's not good for the economy, it's not good for the country. And so you almost have to have a sacrificial lamb, as it were, uh, yes. I think it's um, do you think it's uh, it's it's strange that this really we only think this is unfair in financial transactions. So, for example, my kid just started college, but if I had a chance a year ago to work with the one guidance counselor that everyone says is the greatest path to get your kid into the school he wants, and someone no one would look down on me for picking that guidance counselor. Yep. And no one, now wait a minute, I'm not saying a guidance counselor that has backdoor, side door in, which is a whole other thing. That was that other scandal, that right? Other scandal. <laughs> right. In the case of asymmetry of information, if right. this person is the best guidance counselor in Atlanta, and knowing what your kid should put on their thing, and then he gets in, and just another case, nobody, nobody has a problem with asymmetry of information in the Ukraine war, as an example. We use that term all the time to say, you know, the U.S. provides intelligence to hope to help them get an right. advantage. Right. But in financial transactions, we think it's unfair. Excellent point. And I would, and that's, that is, you know, we have some texts that speak. Well, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. And in fact, scholars, legal scholars, um, and philosophers have actually asked this question. And we, the next text that, that, I'm, that I want to read actually raises that, I think, that very point and that very question. Because when it comes to, forget insider trading. What about someone who has a has a has a keen sense for the stock for for real estate, and kind of can sense when, and they're basing it on real estate deals also work based on information and what you know which neighborhoods are going to be developed, etc. And some people have more information and some people have less information, and it gives the people with more information the advantage. At what point it's a valid question I think that Eric is asking. Where do you draw that line? Why is that line drawn here? Where else might it be expanded or shrunk? Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing going on in society now between equity, equality. Right. Right. Kind of stuff. It's way and, broader. Than oh. But why do you think there's no equivalency? If my kid, let's say your son or grandson. Life's like, not fair. No, but wait a minute. Let's say your son or my or grandson. Yeah. Okay. I think there's an exact equivalency with college admissions. So if you have a son or grandson, it's not a son. That's no, wait, public I, knowledge. No, wait a minute. Public knowledge. There's, there's a limited number of people that can get access. There are only so many spots. And my kid uses it insider information, in other words, a certain guidance counselor to get access to a spot that deprives your child of a spot. If that, if that guidance counselor is well with all know-how, is public information. Oh, so you're uh, saying, what you're saying is that if everybody knows about the possibility. The point, well, no, that's all right. the point. It's asymmetrical. It's not public. He knows something that your person doesn't. But, but what Larry's saying is that, that everybody can know of this guy who has that information. Question about access. Yeah, I, yeah, access. So, good. All right.
So let's let's hold this. Is a, look, this is this is what we're getting into today. Let's let's hold this for a second and let's move on to text number two. And this is very important. And Mindy, if you'll read this, because I think text two is exactly this conversation and why it's so controversial. Oh uh, yeah. What you say about the Martha Stewart story? Who yeah. I think did, who I think did the wrong thing is Fanuel or the, the guy that called her with that mm-hmm. information because she was just minding her own business and right. didn't ask for that information to be brought to her. The person that decided to call her or told his assistant, you call her and tell her that. They also got in I trouble. That's yeah, the they got in trouble and, and the court said since she acted on it, now she's in trouble. And again, and th- this is that's the case, but take a look at text too because I think this will kind of get us questioning this whole thing. Insider trading is one of the most controversial aspects of securities regulation, even among the law and economics community. One set of scholars favors deregulation of insider trading, allowing corporations to set their own insider trading policies by contract. Another set of law and economics scholars, in contrast, contends that the property right to insider information, to inside information, should be assigned to the corporation and not subject to contractual reassignment. Deregulatory arguments are typically premised on the claims that insider trading promotes market efficiency or that assigning the property right to inside information to managers is an efficient compensation scheme. Public choice analysis is also a staple of the deregulatory literature, arguing that the insider trading prohibition benefits market professionals and managers rather than investors. The argument in favor of regulating insider trading traditionally was based on fairness, which predictably has had little traction in the law and economics community. Instead, the economic argument in favor of mandatory insider trading prohibitions has typically rested on some variant of the economics of property rights in information. So that's it. So like a lot of uh, jargon. jargon. But the point is there's two sides to the question. It's not so simple amongst the legal and uh, financial community that insider trading should be a problem. And look, you know, I don't, this is, I know I'm about to step on a, what is it called? The fifth rail, fourth rail, third rail? Third rail. I know I'm about to do this, and I, I and I and I want to go in and then go out without causing too much of an explosion. But you have the same question in politics. When I say politics, politicians that have knowledge about things that are happening and then make investments based on that information. And I know my understanding in Washington is that you can't sell immediately based on info or something. You can't sell based on information. Yeah. They're trying to stop it with the Stock Act, which Thank is going to stop. But you can still trade on insider information as a politician. As a politician, right, which is which one might say is crazy. How is that okay? If this is not okay, then why is that okay? And there's a lot, I think the point of text two, there was a lot of jargon, is how inconsistent and contradictory the application and even the theories of insider trading is. It's a complicated thing. So today what we want to do is like this. We want to look at insider trading from a uniquely Jewish perspective. And when I say Jewish, what do I mean by that? Like, what are we going to dance the Horah? No, we're going to look at Talmudic law, biblical law and Talmudic law, because, which might be surprising, but thousands of years ago, 
the great Jewish scholars were actually exploring a lot of these questions and came up with some pretty solid formulas that might also impact the way we look at things today. And I think that's going to be an area that can be very um, helpful in this conversation. But first, we're going to look at um, a, a, another case study, and this is an ancient case study from the Roman philosopher Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero, literally going back 2,000 years. Okay, this is not a, just to be clear here, this is not the Jewish text that I promised, but this will lead us, this is, this is, this is a Roman text, the Romans destroyed the temple, right, back, in, back at the time of Cicero, I don't think that... Um, uh, that, 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 that Rome and Judea were the best of friends. But nonetheless, it's going to be very, um, I think, very telling in this conversation. Um, Eric, you mind reading this one, case study two? Uh, suppose that an honest man wants to sell a house because certain defects of which he alone is aware. The building is supposed to be quite healthy, but it is in fact unsanitary, and he is aware of that it is. Or the place is badly built and falling down, but nobody knows this except the owner. Suppose he does not disclose the facts to the purchaser and sells the house for much more than expected. Has he behaved unfairly or dishon and dishonestly? Certainly he has, says uh, Antipater. Antipater. At Athens, not to set a man right when he has lost his way is penalized by general exec execration. Um, and it is not precisely the same thing to let a, and is it not precisely the same thing to let a purchaser make a mistake and ruin himself with a, ha a very heavy loss? That is even worse than not showing a man the way, since in this case the purchaser is being deliberately misled. But he did not force you to buy, did he? Objects da, 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 Diogenes. Diogenes. He did not even ask you to. He offered for sale something you did not want. You bought something you wanted. For when the purchaser can exercise his own judgment, what fraud can there be on the part of the seller? It would surely be exceptionally stupid of a seller to enumerate the defects of what he is selling, and the height of absurdity for the auctioneer to proclaim at the owner's request an unsanitary house for sale. Okay, so this is it's fascinating, because Cicero, at least the way it's written, is he would present these moral dilemmas, and he would have, and he had two... Antipater, two philosophers, fellow philosophers that would weigh in, Antipater and Diogenes, and they were polar opposites in their views. So uh, Cicero says, you have a house, you know the flaws, you know it's falling down, let's say, right? But you put it up for sale. Is that ethical? Is that right? Antipater says, of course not. You have to be honest. You have to divulge all the defects, right? Why? Because you're, because you're, 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 you're misleading someone. Diogenes says, Caveat emptor, baby. Buyer beware. I didn't tell you to buy it. You buy it. You want to buy it? You look into it. You inspect it. I don't, have to t I don't have to announce all the flaws. You need to find the flaws. If you don't, if you don't look it up, then it's on you, and that's the deal. Now, by raise of hand, we're going to take a quick poll, super quick poll. Who is of the mind of Antipater who says that you have to be upfront, transparent, honest, forthcoming, and you cannot allow someone else to purchase something they don't know. Your hand is, you guys are up. You're halfway up. All right. Who is of the mind of Diogenes who says, buyer beware. It's on you to figure it out. That's the way it is now. That's the way it is. Uh, yes, yes, in certain cases. Right. There needs to be disclosure, but on the other hand, there is a certain... You have to do the inspection, right? 
Well, yeah, I can't speak for Atlanta, but I can speak for New York. You have to sign all sorts of things very clearly, and they're very specific what your house is like. Then somebody comes in and inspects the house, and uh, they will be held um, legally if something is wrong. Right. And more important, the owner will be held. You could be sued for this. In other words, whether or not it's moral or it's not moral, in New York State, I we're talking New York. You're, you you have to do this, and there will. You're saying as the as the seller, you have to list the defects. Yeah. But you have a form to list, but there are things that are beyond that. So, for example, if the owner doesn't know the roof is bad, but, no, no. but, but uh, has never had a challenge with the roof, then that's then, okay. But yeah. then, and so, and, and, and I think in stock, it's the same thing. You have forms that you list, like you buy shares. It's not your job to go interview employees. Well, wait, wait. I'm not, are you an attorney? No, uh, I'm, 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 I'm just a mommy, okay. I went through this. They're very specific. How old is your roof? How right. old is this? And they go a whole list of things. And I'm, I think I'm the, telling you yeah, I think that the you are indeed so due to if Yeah, but the thing is like this, you, there, there is a gray area which I think is, is going to come saying, up. Yeah. No, the gray area is if you can say, I didn't know. Can it be proven that you did know? And that gets into the ethical question. If you could, hear, hear me out for a second. Okay. If you could, if it couldn't be proven that you knew, but you do know, are you ethically obligated to say what you can get away with? You with me on this? You could get away with it. No, no, I didn't catch it. In other words, let's I, I say you're selling a home, and let's say you have to uh, put in disclosures about the condition of the roof and the this and the that, and you happen to know, you happen to know that there's this thing that's not going to, whatever it is, it's not going to last too much longer, it's going to need repair. Okay, you ready? A I'm dealing with this right now. HVAC system. You know that it's leaking Freon. How do you know this? Because you've had to charge this. You've had to pump in more. But, so what do you do before you sell the house? You pump it up. It's nice and cool. You don't have any disclosures. The person buys the house. It's still cool. A year later, it's no cool, not cool anymore. You check it out, and there's no Freon. The whole thing is empty. And they're telling you when you have the guy, they're like, that owner knew about it. There's no way they didn't know about it. That A hole that big, they definitely knew about it. They pumped every... And they, this, hap this is happening to me right now. Literally right now, I got a text right before the class that the guys are coming over to, to, to do a repair. I, and the guy's like, there's no doubt that the sell, I'm, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, I'm just saying. He's like, this is normal that the owners, if there's a thing, they, 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 they charge it, you know, they, they pump it up, they get it good and cool, and then they sell it. It's a norm, the question is, if legally there's no recourse to go after, because maybe they did know, maybe they didn't know, it can't be proven. There's no way to prove it, right? So, yeah, let's say let's say there's no let's say there's no way to prove it. The question is, is it okay 
to withhold? That's the, that's the moral question. That's the ethical question that um, Cicero is asking. Is it moral or sh- should everything? Forget about the checklist. Things beyond the checklist. Do I have to go and say every single thing that needs attention or it's on you? Yeah. I mean, I do sort of agree with the buyer beware because in today, like we we just bought a new house recently, you have to have an inspection report, but that's on the buyer to request. Like, right. You, have, you pay for it. Right. You get the inspection report and they tell you everything that's wrong with it. Now, we had an experience with a dream house we wanted that we didn't get because that buyer waived inspection report. And that tells me they wanted that house so badly that they were willing to waive the inspection Meaning that anything that would come up on the inspection report, the buyer was willing to pay for and wasn't going to make the original owner cover that. Mm. So that In other words, they said if you do an inspection, it doesn't make a difference. We're still not going to fix anything. No, the buyer no, said we're going to buy gonna, it without an inspection report. Oh, right? so oh, 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 got it. Oh, the buyer. We lost it because oh, the, I see, I see, I see. The owner took that buyer... That's a better deal than to, to waive Ah, I see what you mean. The buyer waived it. Okay. The buyer waived the yeah. inspection so that they would get the, the house. And that, that just tells me that they were willing to cover any of the expenses that would come up on an inspection report instead of making the owner pay the seller before um, they sold it. So. But the buyer I, knew what he was doing, so. Right. Yeah. Well, they're, they're desperate for the house. And, and the seller wants the best offer possible, so sure. that's, a, that's a better Yeah, no, conti- no contingencies, no strings attached. Absolutely. So in that case, you're saying it was not... So I have a question. Yeah. What I'm saying is it's I don't know if anyone said this because I can't really make what, what the question is. Yeah, it's hard to hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't understand why there would be even a question because... Like some things are supposed to work, so you're like the buyer, like the be aware, like the Diocanist. I don't know how to say it in English. Why is it even a question? Why is it even a moral question that if you know what you have to say, why is it not a given that if you know what you say it and the buyer, of course, also needs to Good. ask whatever Good. they need right. to ask. But would I even think to ask that the free on thing is not working? Maybe I didn't, I cannot even, you know, right. I wouldn't even think of right. that question. No, you're asking I, a good question. I, so there's, I think there's a few pieces to this. Number one, the question was asked, I, I just checked his bio. It's it's 2100 years ago. It's 2100 years ago. They didn't have they didn't have documents, e-sign, docu-sign. They didn't have the forms. They didn't. I mean, this is when these things were being formulated and thought about like, do you create that form or you don't don't create? I mean, we're at the end. We're to literally it's not even a joke. It's not an exaggeration. 2100 years after this and we have systems in place that try to protect Different parties to what to some extent, so it, it, we can't we can't necessarily um, you know impose our you know our systems on that. That the question then was, I mean, should should there be any disclosures, or is it I'm offering my house, you figure it out if it's good or not. You ask the you have to ask the questions, you have to do the inspection, whether it's a house or something else. You need to look into it. I don't need to offer what's wrong with it. This is you know kind of almost pre doc pre contracts. This would be a, a general question. Who has the onus? Who has the responsibility to, to, to make sure this is a 
to make sure that this is what it is, that, that this is what is being um, uh, offered. And, and, and I know what you're, what you're saying is, well, it's obvious that the seller should do that. If, if you're selling something, how can you misrepresent that? Okay, no, I hear that. And that's clearly Diogenes' opinion. The other opinion, it, I'm sorry, that's clearly um, uh, the Antipater, right? Antipater's opinion. Diogenes says, look, you, this is what you're selling. Let them look into it. Let the buyer look into it. You don't want to look into it, don't buy it. You don't want to buy it, don't buy it. You want to buy it, look into it. Do, 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 do diligence. That's on you. It's not in the seller. And he says it would be silly for, the, for a person to announce an insanitary house for sale. Like, I'm selling a house that's no good. Who would say that? You say, I'm selling a house, and you look into it. Again, I'm not saying I agree or disagree. I'm saying these are the two, these are the two perspectives. And what this, the good thing about this is it kind of sets the stage for the, for the Jewish conversation, which we're going to do right now. Let's look at text 3a. What we're going to do, and, and I just want to map this out, because over the next few minutes, I'm going to present three different, three or four, well, several, several, <laughs> perfect, several Jewish considerations when it comes to sale. This is very important, and it affects many different things, including real estate, but not, but not exclusive to real estate. This could be any, any buying and selling. And there's going to be some things here that are consistent with U.S. law and some things that are not consistent with U.S. law, but, it, but, it, but it's, it, it, they're all interesting ideas. So, the, the, and I'll tell you up front, just so that, you, you have, so that your mind is organized with the, with the step-by-step where I'm taking you right now, so we're all clear on the same page here. We're going to talk about three areas of consideration for this case. Number one, deception. Is there deception happening? Number two, Mekachtos, uh, which means misinformed sale or purchase, which I will explain. And number three called Ona, which means um, price gouging. So these are the three considerations that we're going to address. Deception, misinformed sale, and price gouging. And if you're wondering what, what am I talking about, don't, I, I'm just giving you the outline. We're going to jump into it now. Yeah. So before you, so I understand, I'm, where does Jewish law come from? Majority rule of a okay, good. Excellent. Excellent. So what does Jewish law cover? Yeah, good. So this is a good, a good intro. We'll do a very quick, like on one leg intro on this. So Jewish law always comes from Torah, from the Bible. And the Torah speaks about um, a lot of re- what we would call religious law, but it also speaks a lot of, uh, there's also a lot of civil law, monetary law, and, you know, other stuff. Now the Talmud, the Mishnah and Talmud uh, pull out from the Torah and, and, and delve deep into it and pull it apart and say, okay, the, here's the law in the Torah. What does it mean? How do we apply it? What about this variant, that variant case? And, and we'll explore it. There's a set of Talmud, Gemara right down here, which probably very few of you can see. That, I'll just pull it. All right. All right, fine. You've convinced me. So here is, it's also blocked by this partition, whatever. This is a, this is a copy of the Talmud. It's a big book. They're, they don't, they're not all printed this. They don't have to be printed big, but oftentimes they are. Um, you know when they say we'll throw the book at you? You don't want to be hit with this book. That's for sure. That's for, of any book. This is a massive, this is like a life-size version book, right? And if you look at the print, let me show you the print in the back. That's how small it is. This is not a large print book. This is a book of incredible scholarship. Jews Amongst others, Jews are smart. Uh, many Jews are smart. And again, amongst, not exclusively smart, but many Jews are smart. And these are the, sm- the brightest of the bright weighed in on Jewish law. That's what they spent their time with. And the product is the Talmud and commentaries that, that dozens of volumes like this that are detailing Jewish law. So when we talk about Jewish law, where does it come from? 
It all comes from Torah, a Bible, the, the Torah, from the Talmud and then post-Talmudic commentaries. But the situation is in that little square in the middle and everything around it are different commentaries yes. by different scholars. Yeah. They arrive at the- oh, at a conclusion. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times, a lot of times there's consensus. When there's not, then you have, you know, machloket, you have dispute, and then at some point down the line, there is usually arrived. There's a consensus that's usually arrived. There's usually a rabbi who says this is this is yeah. the way we're going to look at. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Like Maimonides, one of the big things that he did. Everyone's Maimonides. What did he do? One of the big things that he did was he he didn't do it alone. He didn't. He's not the only one to do it. But he has a a system by which he you know he learns the Talmud and says, okay, if there's a dispute in the Talmud, you can kind of find out you know based on how the Talmud acts or you know directs the conversational flow. You know who the halacha, who the law should be in accordance with, and that's and sometimes people disagree with Maimonides, but that's I'll just put it down over here. But that's kind of how um, uh, how that is how that is done. Okay, now let's jump into three areas of conversation. Now our case study remember is about the house. The question on the table is if you have a house, and this is two thousand one hundred years ago, you're not you're not filling out a contract. This is a moral question, ethical question, maybe a legal question, right? You know the effects in the house. Should, are, should you be allowed to sell it you know, without disclosing or should you disclose? So we're going to deal with three issues, potential issues with this. Number one is deception. Um, take a look at text 3a. This is Maimonides, uh, who I just mentioned. Maimonides, in his Hilchot Deot, writes the following. Um, Larry, do you want to read text 3a, please? A person is forbidden to act in a smooth tongue and learning manner. Saying one thing outwardly and thinking otherwise in one's heart. So Maimonides tells us, and this is not specifically within the realm of transactional law, but in general within regard of, of, of just you know, personal wheelings and dealings, that a person must act, it's forbidden to act in a deceptive manner. Deception is not okay. Okay, now this has um, a ramification in business law, which is text 3b. Elaine, please read text 3b. When, so now, now we have a general personal propriety. To, you have to, it's, you, we have to be a mensch, and that means being honest and not being deceptive. Great. How does that play out in business 3B? It is forbidden to trick people in commerce or to deceive them. For example, if merchandise is blemished, one must inform the customer. Likewise, one should not sell a Gentile non-kosher meat as if it's oh. kosher. Now that's so fascinating. Listen to this, and I'm going to break down both of these ideas. So, number one, clearly, this is code of Jewish law. This is like bottom line law, which is the distillation of all the Talmud and commentaries. Bottom line, what's the book, the code of Jewish law? That tells you what you can and cannot do in many areas, including business. Or Jewishly, it says, forbidden to trick people in commerce or deception. What does that mean? It includes omission, right? Laws of omission, uh, lies of omission, whatever. Deception by omission is also deception. So if you know about the, the defect or the blemish of the merchandise, you have to be upfront. So here we have 
seemingly an answer to our question, but we're not done yet by any means. Um, so you have to inform the customer. But that second piece is also fascinating. Imagine you're a kosher butcher. Now, if you're a kosher butcher, you sell kosher meat. And um, I, yeah, it's more expensive. It's definitely more expensive. Um, okay. But let's say as a kosher butcher, you're not just selling what somebody else packaged. You're actually the butcher. You're dealing with the, the meat. And it turns out that as the meat is kind of getting cut and whatever, there are cuts of the meat and parts of the animal that are not kosher. Okay? So now there's pieces of the, of the animal that are not kosher. But, and somebody walks in who's not Jewish and they want, they're buying what they think is kosher meat. You sell to them as kosher meat when it's not kosher. And you're thinking, you're the butcher, you're thinking, well, they don't need to eat kosher. So therefore, I'm selling them non-kosher meat. I'm not telling them it's not kosher. Here's the meat from the kosher butcher. It's fine. It's all good. And meanwhile, you're selling them non-kosher meat. Is that kosher? <laughs> First of all, no. And second of all, no, it's not kosher. So it clearly says, one should not sell a Gentile non-kosher meat as if it were kosher. Why? Because it's blemished. When I say blemish, I don't mean non-kosher is blemish. What I mean is that you're misrepresenting the merchandise. The merchandise is not kosher. You're representing it as kosher. That's a misrepresentation. That's deception. And that is not okay. That's clear in the Code of Jewish Law. Now let's take a, hold that question for a second. Take a look at text 3C. Are you up to reading? What? Are you, uh, Marilyn, are you up to reading at text 3C? All right. Take it away. When a person sells a colleague real estate or removable property... If there is a defect in the property of which the purchaser was not aware, it may be returned, even though several years have passed, for the transaction was concluded under erroneous premises. The above applies provided the buyer did not use the purchased article after discovering the blemish. If, however, it was used after the blemish was discovered, the buyer forfeits the right to retract and may not return the article. What's hap Thank you. What's happening here is, hold on, before you turn the page, let's just focus on text receipt for a moment because here we just moved on to the next piece, which is called mekachtos. In Jewish law and Jewish business law, you have a very interesting um, area of conversation, and that is called mekachtos. Mekachtos means misinformed sale or purchase. If, if an item has a defect, and you buy, you didn't know about it, and you buy it, and then you discover the defect. In Jewish law, you can go back and overturn or null the sale. Why? Because you say mekach tos. It was a mistaken sale. It was a it was a misinformed purchase. I didn't know what I was buying. Um, I didn't have that information. Now that I have the information, I no longer want it. Here's your stuff back. Your house back. It says whether it's real estate or movable property. Movable property means you buy a computer, whatever it is. If it has a hidden defect, now here's the, the then you can overturn the sale. It, that's providing if as soon as you found out about it, you said, I don't want it. If you still used it, as you said, if you still used it, and then later on you're like, yeah, but as a flaw, I want to, then no backsies. Because you already used it after that. How do you prove if you use it or not? That's a complicated, that, that would be a complicated formula. But here's what I want to say. This law of misinformed uh, purchase has nothing to do with deception. Even if the seller didn't know about the defect, you can overturn the sale if there was a hidden flaw. Are you with me on this? If there's something inherent in this thing that is broken, doesn't work, 
right? It's not that we're punishing the seller for knowing about it and not telling you, even if he or she didn't know about it, they didn't know about it. It doesn't matter. If you buy, you know, we have laws like this when it comes to cars, right? Lemon laws, right? It, it, we're not saying the dealership is, the dealer's a ganif, they're a thief. No, no, who said? They have no idea. No one knows about the defect. It's a hidden defect. No one knows until somebody drives it. No one knows that the car just, whatever, is a lemon. But once it's discovered, you can, you can reverse the sale. Why? Because you didn't buy a lemon. You bought a car. You know what an esrog is? The esrog, the esrog for, uh, I once bought, I spent good money on that because it's, you know, it's expensive. I took it home. Didn't work. It was a lemon. I'm kidding. That was a joke. That was, <laughs> I probably telegraphed that joke too much. But anyway, so what's the point? The point is that there's two, there's, now we have two issues. I told you we have, th- we're going to talk about three, I think three issues. Number one was deception. It's not good to withhold information. It means you're being deceptive. But beyond that, even if you're not being deceptive, the bottom line is if somebody purchases a thing and it turns out not to be that thing, then they can, they can overturn that. Provided, of course, it's a significant enough of, def- of a defect that renders it not the same thing as what you thought you bought. Yeah. So what if they buy an automobile? Yeah. Five years later... Something doesn't. I mean, uh, no, no, yeah, that I, that wouldn't. What if you buy a house and uh, five years later there's methane gas? Nobody knew about it. I mean, there's so many exceptions. No, you're asking a really good question. Where do you draw that line? To me, it means mm, right. I don't. There's got to be some time constraint, and also like what it is, how critical it is. You know how how inherent of a flaw that it renders this thing not that thing anymore you know a house with a leak is still a house with a leak i don't know if one can say oh it has a leak then it's not a house i'm saying if it's a thing that that, that, if the car doesn't work it's a lemon it's not a car anymore it has to be crucial critical enough and also i think there's got to be a time consideration as well you know even in the case where you didn't know about it before five years later it means that how critical is that piece? If, if you could live there five years with that thing, was it really critical? Again, I, I think every case, would, 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 based on this, there would have to be um, uh, an analysis and, and, and hopefully a formula drawn up. And, and maybe there is. I don't, I don't know of that exact formula. But I think that, is, uh, that, that, would, that would be an outcome of this. So I'll give you two examples that are easy. So some things depreciate or decay. Cars. So the lemon law is a 24,000 mile limit. After you go on one mile after that, you can't get coverage for buyback. But that's not um, Jewish law, though. That's the right. right. No, but there, the point is that there is a right. Become something else during use. They right. become used. Right. And they're. In other words, it doesn't mean it wasn't a car. It means it's a car that, with X number of miles, yeah, it can change. Yeah, it's a good point. So we have a property in Blue Ridge. And there's an easement across it. And one of the people that claimed to have an easement, when we did research, we found that the prior owner sold it to them and added it to the title while they had it, but the prior person did not add it. In other words, it didn't always go with the title. Mm, interesting. So their action created a subterfuge that this person was, of, there were four families, but really only three had, had it. That person knowingly gave, you know, so that thing doesn't, that, no amount of time changes that the guy doesn't really have an easement. So that would be so. so 
so interesting. So are you so, I, I, let me make sure I understand it. So what you're saying in that case is if there's a misrepresentation of what that property ownership includes, then maybe that's that's critical enough that one could say, oh, I, I, I thought that it was being included in this in this uh, in the property and that's not. I'm out. Right. That so that would be. a Yeah, I like that example, because then then you're misrepresenting the thing itself. Like, what is this thing that I'm buying? What is the limits of the property? Good. All right. Yeah. So just ability to pass your property. I remember, like, if a kosher butcher sells the unkosher parts. Yeah. To a non-Jewish person. Yeah. And doesn't sell it as kosher, just if you're Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one is allowed to profit from non-kosher, with one exception, the mixture of meat and milk. For There's a specific, it's repeated in the Torah three times, the prohibition of meat and milk, which includes also profiting from it. Uh, which means if you own a McDonald's franchise, then you would have to have a non-Jewish partner who's making the money off the cheeseburgers, whereas you can make the money off the chicken nuggets, and that's fine. Uh, so, 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 yeah, if you're a butcher, you can sell not yet. Yeah, non-kosher is fine to sell and profit off of, but specifically the mixture of meat and milk. Uh, so growing up in Pittsburgh, there was a family who owned a lot of Chuck E. Cheeses, a Jewish family that owned a lot of Chuck E. Cheeses in the Pittsburgh area, Squirrel Hill area. And, um, you know, that family wasn't always, they weren't always a religious family, but as they, as they became more connected, you know, and, and whatever, and they wanted to go more by Jewish law, so they actually had to bring on, had to, they chose to bring on partners and, you know, kind of you know, divide the, the, the stuff because of pepperoni pizza, right, because they're selling, right, exactly. So like 20% of the pizzas are pepperoni, they're not going to take 20% of the profit? Some, there's, there's, a, there's a form where you figure, yeah, you figure out something, yeah, no, you figure out something, how to, you know, how to divide the profit and you don't own that piece of the pie. Oh, that's the second, that's the second. Uh, yeah. You don't own the, the non-coach, like the butcher, the example of the butcher before. Yeah. That butcher would not profit from the non-kosher food, uh, meat that he would sell. No, he could, he could. Non-kosher meat is fine to profit off of. He can, pro he definitely he can profit off of that non-kosher meat. The problem would be if it was meat and milk, if it was a, it was a food item that was a cooked food item of meat and milk together. But barring that, but a butcher doesn't have to worry, typically a butcher doesn't have to worry about that. So the butcher, a kosher butcher is absolutely allowed to sell non-kosher meat for a profit. But as we said before, he has to be transparent and say, this is non-kosher meat. And the pricing would have to be adjusted accordingly. You can't sell non-kosher meat as kosher meat on multiple levels. It's deceptive. And it's, you know, the prices. Don't know if that person. Maybe he wants to eat kosher. Oh, right. What Mindy's saying, and maybe that non-Jewish person who's walking in might give it to a Jewish person and thinking they got it from the kosher butcher. That's a great point. I didn't even think of that. That's a great point. Yeah. It's opening up. No worries. It's opening up a whole can of worms. All right. So let's get to the third issue. Um, yeah, we have. So we're going to end at 115, but we'll, we'll be very quick here. So we have the third issue is called Ona, which is price fraud. Now, in Jewish law, the law is like this. You can make a profit. Sorry? Thank you. See you next week. Pleasure. See you next week. Thank you. So you can, if you're selling something and the market value is, you know, every, every, every item in the marketplace usually has a, um, has a, uh, a, a range of, of, of profit. What do they call that? The, um, what's the business term? Margin. Right. Profit margin. So profit margin, you know, it, it's depending on what you're selling is X percent. 
and that's fine, whatever the market dictates. If there's a certain market profit margin, like the market dictates a certain profit margin, okay? And then you um, charge more than a sixth of that profit margin on top of what everyone else is charging, and you're doing it in a way where the customer doesn't realize that you are going beyond what the market typically supports, um, then that is considered to be another form of fraud, and that also is overturned if it's more than a six. So I'll give you a simple example that, I've that I became aware of when I was once visiting Key West. I visited Key West. I was, uh, spent a year in Yeshiva in Miami, and at some point, we went down, the Yeshiva students went down, we drove down to Key West, there's Chabad over there, and happens to be there's a lot of um, uh, Israeli t-shirt shop. Israelis that own the t-shirt shop. Like the t-shirt, like the, the um, uh, for tourists, like the tourist shops, a lot of them are owned by Israelis. And a lot of cruise ships end up in Key West. And the guys told us that you have foreigners who don't know America, who come with cash, and they sell them t-shirts at a very high rate of money they have a gold foil you know like that when you screen uh print t-shirts they would tell them that it's actually real gold and you're buying a real gold t-shirt and they would charge them like a hundred back in the, i don't know they was 150 dollars for you know a 15 dollar t-shirt and the guys would pay it. now i'm not trying i'm not this is not intended to throw anybody in the bus etc i'm just saying simply this oh not means like that. if everyone's charging uh, you know a hundred dollars a t-shirt fine but if you're the first t-shirt shop that's closest to the dock Right, and the person gets off, the, and they don't, you know, they don't know the country, they don't know the, the what, what the price, what the market is, and you're, you know, misrepresenting the market as, you know, this is a normal price when it's not, then that's a problem. If you say that the normal price of a T-shirt is twenty bucks, and we're charging fifty because it's more convenient, that's fine. If you're a gas station in a popular area, and you kind of, I don't know if you have to advertise this, but you can kind of say, like, everyone else is charging this, but we happen to be in a, hot, in a hot area, we're charging more. If you go to Truist Park, that's where the Braves play, I, I, I've been to several games, my kids are baseball, and we're you know, Braves fans and whatever, so I take the, hey Mendel, good to see you, hey, one of my sons. Uh, so you go to a game, you, the Coke from the fountain, the fountain Coke is eight bucks a little bit more than eight bucks after tax, which is mashuga, right? And water is also what, four fifty, five bucks? What if for a bottle of water? It's like, are you kidding me? But you know, you know it's not, they're not representing that this is the normal market. Right? You're in a stadium, you wanna bring in your own drink, good luck, I, I, I sometimes bring in my own drinks. I definitely bring in my own food, I bring in hot dog, kosher hot dogs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it has a, it's a few very specific rules with Truist. It has to be in a clear Ziploc, in a clear Ziploc, and then they look at it, and every time, like, okay. And then the last time, yeah, yeah, I tell them it's kosher. Yeah, they're fine with it. Anyway, what I, it's, it, it's, it takes an ha extra half second, but they're usually fine with it. What's my point? The point is that ona is, ona means price fraud. If you're, if you're charging more than a sixth of the market value, that's also a problem. Now. He's in the, he's in the first stop off the ship, and he charges more because he paid more for the... Yes, or pay, pay, pays more rent to his, right, then it's fine. But if you're misrepresenting the market value, then it could be a problem. So now, if we are going back to our case of Cicero, 
right? And the case of the defective house. So you have a defective house and you know it's defective and you're putting it up for sale. You might run afoul on all three of these. Number one, deception. You know and you're not telling. You, you might run afoul of deception. Number two, that was the issue of, of selling something with a flaw. This has a flaw. Let's say it's a core. We don't know what the flaw is, but if it's a critical enough flaw, then you're not selling a house. You're selling a broken house. That's not cool either. And if you're charging full price for the house that has a defect, well, guess what? There's price fraud also. You might run afoul of all three in Cicero's case. However, however, there is a catch. The catch is, the catch is, that when it comes to financial transactions, take a look at, take a look at this text. I'll read it quickly. Take a look at text 5a. This is all the way on page 13. Text 5a says, the Talmud says, all stipulations in monetary matters are valid, which means when it comes to monetary transactions, you, whatever you agree to contractually is kosher, which means, which means, buyer could waive his or her rights, but would have to know that they're waiving their rights, could not be, be um, hoodwinked into waiving their rights. So when it comes to waiving rights, what it would mean would be that there would have to be an upfront statement of this is the condition of the house. It's not worth, let's say you're selling a house, I don't know, $500,000, but it's really worth in the condition 300000 but you've polished it up so that it looks like it's 500000 and you're selling it for 500000 Number one, deception. Number two, it might be an unsanitary house, as in the case of you know the, the language over there, which is a problem. Number three, price fraud. Now, could the seller say, I'm so desperate, like in exactly the case that you mentioned before. Could the seller say, I'm so desperate for a house that I'm, I'm willing to waive, sorry, the buyer, I'm so sorry. Could the buyer conceptually say, I'm so desperate, I'm willing to waive all my rights or uh, to inspection and to knowledge. Could the seller say, these are my demands that you will not do an inspection. Could that happen based on all stipulations are valid? Yes, but, but if yes, but, but. Text 5b clarifies. If a person tells a colleague, we are completing this transaction on condition that you do not hold me responsible for another, that means for price gouging, the law of, laws of another still apply. When is the above true when the statement is made without being explicit? In such an instance, the disadvantaged party does not know the extent of the ona and therefore cannot properly relinquish the claim. If, however, one is explicit, the laws of ona do not apply because all conditions that are accepted by both parties are binding in case of financial law. So in other words, let me just... Uh, it's gonna, we're going to two seconds on the language. Here's the point. Can, theoretically, both sides can waive rights, or can one, you know, the, the, it, that can be waived, but you have to know what you're waiving. You have to know what you're waiving. In other words, you don't have to know all the details, but you have to know generally what you, am I waiving $10,000 of value or $200,000 of value? Is there a little defect or a massive defect? I don't, if I, so even in a case where it's waived, you have to know. The way this goes back to information is one, one final case. It's 60 seconds and we'll close out. One final case. What happens if you know you're selling, example that's here in the Texas, corn. You're selling corn. There's a shortage of corn. You have corn and you're selling it for a killing. You know because you're, you're in the business that there's a shipment that's going to come that's going to bring down the price. But today, that shipment has not yet arrived. The, port, the ships are coming in. In three days, can you charge the current market price now? Or is that considered taking advantage insider information? Halacha says, Jewish law says, 
Ona is only based on the current value. So as long as those ships haven't arrived, even though you know they're going to arrive, you're allowed to charge, which means that insider information might not always be problematic. Good to see you. <laughs> I'm shaking your hand. So the CEO of the company. Yeah. When he sold his shares, is that right. considered insider uh, trading? Uh, uh, uh. So if you know that the ships are coming, the FDA is coming down, but no one else knows, but this is the market value, one could argue that Martha Stewart, maybe even the CEO, did nothing wrong. Why? Because right now, this is what it's worth. I have the shares, I'm selling them. I didn't mis misrepresent, they are shares of this company. That's legit. The shares are worth this amount right now. I, the fact that tomorrow it's gonna collapse because of information that I know, that might not change a thing. However, there could be other considerations such as market, could see you guys, no worries, such as market confidence that we wanna protect that we might have an incentive to say that that's not okay, which is kind of where we are here in the U.S., but from an interesting US, uh, uh, Jewish legal perspective, based on uh, deception, there's no deception. I'm selling you, I'm selling you shares of, of, uh, of Imclone. Imclone is Imclone, it's shares. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm not um, misrepresenting the price. This is the current price. Right, so I might be clear on all those issues and yet we still might run afoul for other considerations that we have not mentioned. The point of this is that Jewish law and Jewish ethics deals with a lot of these cases, has an interesting take on it, and you really have to look through all the considerations before arriving at a conclusion. But I think to me the conclusion is we don't just say buyer beware, we put the responsibility on the seller as well. Can't be deceptive. You can't sell something that, that it isn't. You can't misrepresent something you have if it isn't. And you can't take advantage of the, of the price when the buyer does not know what the current market value is. Could yeah, just, absolutely. This, this thing with the um, ship. Yes. You don't know that that ship is going to get there. Oh, That's true. excellent. That's what some of the commentators say. Some of the commentators say that the reason why when the ship is still out in port, et cetera, is because explosion correct so the cat so that could also be applied to that to, to martha stewart's case right how certain maybe the fda would change its one could argue maybe the fda would change its mind by tomorrow maybe it would approve it or maybe it would kick it down the road a little bit it's not certain and so therefore again i know what we're doing what we're doing here is really dividing the cases we're saying in most cases jewish law takes a very strong stance against fraud and deceptive activity actions and against price gouging. However, in a case where it's only a future law, a future change in the market, that might not apply right now, which again opens the door to a little bit of insider information, which could be problematic for another reason outside these three areas that we discussed. But I think in general, it's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating conversation. And I think for, for you and I, the, the message, the overarching message is about the, 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 the extent to which Jewish law requires us to be honest, forthcoming, transparent about all of our, about all of our willings and dealings, whether that's financial or interpersonal. Yeah. The thing that's confusing right. me about the Martha Stewart story is that she did not know the reason. Right, the FDA. She didn't have the inside information. Correct. She just did what her friend did. Yeah. And she did it based on the fact that he probably had more information, but she didn't know his inside information. So she, right, so she, right. That's why a lot of people had a problem with that. Yeah. And, and, and pretty much, as I said before, the only, reason why, the only reason why she served time was because it was too high, too high profile. 
to not, if they didn't, if they didn't give her, I don't know how long she sat, a few months? I don't think it was too. She got 20 months and I thought it was very unfair. Yeah, most, most legal experts said that she should not have sat in prison at the time. Most people said she shouldn't, but they did it to make an example, which is that fair? I don't know that that's fair. And I think, and again, I think the interesting thing is in, in Jewish law, and, and I, I, to, if, if I were to point you in the direction of, of, of that specific case to think about, um, um, where is it? Uh, yeah, well, it's, um, it's in text 7b. If the market price changes after a sale, a not claim cannot be made as a result of this change. Right, of course, that's how the stock market works. Yeah. You can't say, oh, I didn't know it was going to go down. Now, the, but the question here is if somebody knows, if somebody has that information, but again, how certain is the information? As you pointed out, maybe the ship is not going to come in. Maybe the FDA is not going to reject it. Who knows? How certain is certainty? And so, and I think that's what Eric was, was kind of saying initially is uh, there's a lot of gray areas about like uh, how much information, how much weight does information have, and how solid is that information, and how much of an advantage does that give? And even if it does give it give give it uh, an advantage, it might be about a future advantage and not a current reality. In which case, you know, one could argue that it is fine. She's selling shares; their shares of Imclone. Imclone is currently worth X number of dollars per share. She sold them. She, she delivered the shares that she promised, and that's it. I, it's going to go down in a day or two. But again, consumer confidence. Judy, Jewish law might also say that we have to make a takana, we have to make a decree. That, since, that if people take advantage of, of information, you might have to come down hard on that. It, it would, it would, so is there a hard and fast rule? There's no hard and fast rule. But we see here the mechanisms, the, the different ways of looking at it and how uh, a rabbi and how Jewish law would approach it. It's like, what are the potential problems? Let's address each one at a time. Does it apply? Does it not apply? How would it apply? Et cetera. Um, so, yes. I have a question. Sure. On the case of waiving, like if I waive yes. my right, yes. who, tells, who tells me 10000 or 200000 Good. Excellent. And Right. And who tells me, uh, we're back to, I'm waving something, but what am I waving? The, the, the ceiling of the house that will turn it into, it's raining inside of me, so it's not a house. Or I'm waving, who tells, what? Excellent. Excellent question. It's the, in, in Jewish law, it would be the seller that has to disclose, even when both sides are waiving, or even when, let's say, the buyer is waiving his or her rights to inspection, in Jewish law, that wouldn't mean no information is now delivered. You would still have to, in order to waive, in order for the buyer to say, I waive the inspection, the buyer would have to know how bad it is. In other words, it's hard, it's hard for me to articulate this. It's like the... Um, a buyer might have a reasonable expectation of a house is going to need, I don't know, $10,000 worth of work. It's going to have, you know, X number of, of dollars of work that it's going to need after inspection. I don't care. I'm going to waive. I don't need to spend money on the inspection and then drive you crazy. I'm willing to, to own that and whatever. I'm, will, I'm willing to take that as a hit. I know that because I want the house. I want to wrap it up. But if it's a two. Now, I know your, your question is. But who, how do you know what the scale is? I'm going extremes, 10,000 or 200,000. What if it's 30,000, right? Does that have to be exclosed? The point is that the, in Jewish law, there would have to be an indication from the seller to say, 
there, it needs some work. It's not a ton of work. It's within X range, but we're agreeing to waive the specifics, waive the inspection, but this is what you can expect in this range. If that, if that range is not, is, not, uh, is not specified, and it turns out that it's a very huge expense, then the sell, even though the buyer waived their rights to inspection, in Jewish law, the buyer can come back and say, I waived it with this expectation, not that expectation, which means that the onus is still on the seller to set an expectation and then to stick. That expectation has to be a realistic expectation. If not, it can be reversed. So yes, all, all when it comes to monetary matters, all arrangements, all agreements can be made. You can make whatever deal you want. And Jewish law is not going to... You make whatever deal you want with buyer and seller. Make your own arrangements, as long as it's mutually um, agreeable. But Jewish law says that the parties, in order to be in agreement, you have to know what you're talking about. You have to be talking about the same thing. You can be talking about two different things. So even when you make an agreement, the seller has to know within which realm we're talking. I mean, oh, what are, what are we dealing with here? And, and, if, and if he doesn't, if she, or if she doesn't, then what kind of agreement is that? There was no agreement. Someone took advantage of the other party. That's the point. You can't have that scenario. Because, yes, the Talmud says all agreements are valid, but that's when you have an agreement. Otherwise, you have fraud. That's how, that's how the Talmud would still get back to disclosure, some measure of disclosure. Yeah. I just wanted to give one more example of when we were house hunting. And there was a really good house on the market that had been on the market for a long time. So we're like, all right, what's wrong with it? Like right. You kind of Why get, is this house sitting like for so long? It's too good to be true. If it's, right. if it's too big of a house for a smaller price and it's been there for a while, like what's wrong with it? And, and the agent told us that like, if, you, you, um, if you choose to pursue this, you really have to get the inspection and see. And then when they got the inspection that you could see, where all the previous buyers pulled pulled out at, because at the inspection report revealed Got it. so much significant stuff. stuff. Significant See, look, stuff. today I would say, and this came up before, 2,100 years later after Cicero, we have systems in place. And even when it comes to you know imperfect systems here in the U.S., there are, as you mentioned, Marilyn, there are contracts. And contracts, the seller does have to at least check boxes and disclose. You have to give basic information. How old is the roof? How old is the, you know, when was the, I don't know, maybe the mechanical stuff put in. Yeah, you, maybe, yes, maybe. I don't, I don't know if that's on there. But you would have to disclose certain things. Um, um, there is an inspection that at the normal course of action, an inspection is done. We even, I say even. Here in the U.S., we want people to also be informed when they make a big purchase. It's, it's, good, it's good for everybody to have that protection. And I think a lot of this is driven by these conversations that happened a long time ago and can still be driven and influenced by those conversations that happened a long time ago. And that's, that's kind of what we're doing. Yeah. But you could sell something. New York is very, very strict. I find Atlanta isn't so strict about a lot of stuff. <laughs> but like right is, turns on red. <laughs> like turning right on a red light. <laughs> as is. You can sell something as is. Mm. And you're, then you're taking oh. the total responsibility. Mm. So. so good, 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 good. So that would be the exact scenario. Can you sell a house as is, and what are the implications of that? In Jewish law, okay. that you couldn't really do that. Why? Because even if the buyer agrees, oh. they have to know what they're agreeing to. As is is too general. You have to be a little bit more specific. What is the as is? Uh, what, hold on, as is? What is it? Uh, I'm, I'm buying like a, uh, like, like a, um, 
you know, these websites sell, you know, 20 bucks, you get a, a you, they sell you a box of whatever. It could be garbage, it could be like rolled up tissue paper. Remember when you did uh, like in school? Mystery box. Mystery bo oh, mystery box, exactly. What is that, mystery box? Mystery box, by the way, halakhically, halakhically, a mystery box would be a problem. I, I mean, because can one ever consent to what you don't know? That's the question. It comes down, that's the good way of phrasing it. Can you really consent if you don't know? You say, yes, I consented to what I don't know. So then you didn't consent. What? Consent means that you say yes to this. What did you say yes to? To what you don't know? How is that saying yes? It has to be a positive, not a negative. It has to be a, a, an affirmative, not a whatever it is. So even when it's as is, there would have to be some sort of framework of, even if it's not super specific, but some sort of framework of, of, of knowledge that the person can then say, yes, I agree to this. There has to be something that is agreed to, not an, an, an unknown. I hope that makes sense. I think, I think to me it makes, it me makes sense. Anyway, so would Jewish law perfectly agree with U.S. law? No. Um, are there areas of overlap? Yes, most areas in this case, I think most would overlap. The one wrinkle that goes the other way, because usually Jewish law is stricter when it comes to this, you know, honesty and fraud and everything. The one, the one thing that we saw today that would almost go the other way, maybe, is insider trading. Because all that means is that tomorrow something may happen, but if it's not here today, does it really, does it really constitute fraud? But again, that's all excluding the other rationales for insider trading, like consumer confidence, which I totally understand. And if the rabbis were thinking on a, on a larger scale economic level, they might have enacted another law that said no insider trading. Who knows? They might have also put that in. But based on these areas, it actually wouldn't necessarily be problematic. Well, sold the house in Maui yeah. two oh. days before. But that's wow. exact, isn't yeah. that really what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I think that those people... Uh, yeah, Marilyn, you mentioned, what if you sold a house in Maui two days before, but you you knew that the fire was coming. The buyer <laughs> didn't know the fire was coming, right? Is, yeah. that, is that considered, right? But nothing certain. Two days from now, and two days, and, and, yeah, these are, okay, these are, these are the questions. If I'm not mistaken, there's even a source in the Talmud that deals with a... Um, a uh, um, a case of Ugh. a case of uh, of natural disaster, but I can't find it. Okay, I don't think we have it here. All right, Thank good to see everybody. So great to see you guys. Thank you, Eve and Irena. Great to see you guys and our in-person crew. Great to see you, Marilyn and Mindy and Deborah. This is four weeks. Yeah. Where did you get the bagels there? Oh, kosher gourmet. Best. Yeah. You made them. No, 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 no. From the store in Toco Hills. Kosher Gourmet. Kosher Gourmet. Yeah. Where is that? It's on La Vista and Briarcliff. Right at the heart of the shtetl. Right at the heart of the of the of the of the, of the, 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 the Toco Hill. Kosher Gourmet. Quality kosher. Kosher Gourmet. Is it near Wine Rip Hospitals? No. I don't Kosher think so. Kosher Gourmet. I have to Kosher gourmet. By the way, I found a life hack. Listen to this. How do you get it from Kosher Gourmet here? Back in the day, it was closer when I was in town. But how do you get it here? Listen to this. What is it? What are you looking for? Kosher Gourmet. No, no, I know. But what, oh. Light something or other you're saying? L a life hack. Oh, life hack. Oh, a life this hack. Is, this is okay. like a trick of the trade. Got it. So yeah. listen to this. So listen to this. So I um, started doing this. I started Uber. Uber has on the app... They have a, you can hit a ride or food or delivery. 
Delivery means pick up and drop off. I literally hit Uber delivery, and I don't, I feel, I almost feel like it's, I'm tipping because on top more than usual because of how cheap it is. It's $11 from Toco. Oh, so the driver here. went and picked up the food? Yeah, the driver goes into the store, picks up the food, and drops it off right here. So Kosher Gourmet charges $45 for delivery. $35, because it's out of there. They don't, they're not delivered, so if you want to deliver it. So this is $11. I almost feel like it's like, oh my gosh, so I'm tipping a lot, but like, it's incredible. So he, my, my, my only point is that used to be back in the day, like we used to use couriers. Couriers also charge minimum of like 50 bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. Nowadays, Uber has this built into their platform. You hit literally the, one of the options, you have to Does look for it. You hit, you, you have to scroll over, you hit delivery. It looks like a little packet, like a little box. Hit delivery and you say whether you're receiving it or sending it and it's great. I sometimes, my you kids want to go. Yeah, I pay for the food and they have it ready exactly. and everything, so they just have to get it. And I give them a heads up when you know, they, and they, they they work with me. But I sometimes do this delivery um, if my kid wants to go, you know, away for Shabbos to a different friend in a different community. I'll do Uber package. Boom. Here's a. I'm kidding. That was a trip. That was. That was now. Now there's no. No, there's no delivery. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, there's but but the food thing is true. Hey. All right. This is Nastin. This is Mendel. Where Shai is here, right? This is another sign. So this is my oldest, and that's my second oldest. Hello. 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 Oh. I know, right? This is Nussin. And that's Mendel all the way. That guy. Yeah. It's nice. It's great to have everybody home. And like I said, we're having a yeshiva here half day. So it's so nice. It's amazing. We have, we have, oh, you saw the post. I think my, yeah, I think, yeah, we posted on Instagram. Uh, no, I'll just, I'm just going to cover it and we'll put it away. Thank, Thank you for asking. But I want to pay you. Yes, okay, let's do that now. All right, Irena, great to see you. Bye, guys. Bye, sweetie. Bye, sweetie. Bye, sweetie. All right, love you. Bye. It's so great to have you guys. All right, we'll see you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. And hold on, let me take off the recorder. Oh, boy. He has five girls and a boy.